We have made it to double digits. We've made it to a decade's worth. If you play one episode a year of uh, Minor League Baseball Podcast, the show before the show. I'm Tyler Mon. He's Jake Siner. Ten episodes, Jake. I'm, I'm really hoping that in ten it's years, madness. listening to our analysis of Minor League Baseball and holding <laughs> us uh, holding us accountable. Well, I don't know. You guys weren't right about this guy. Let me tell you. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to hold your feet guys to the fire. Guys, Hall of Famer, he's going to be out of the game by then. He'll be retired for eight years. That'll be a, you know, it's our strong suit. Hey, welcome <laughs> in. Episode number 10 of the show before the show, the Minor League Baseball Podcast. I'm Tyler Mon. Like I said, he is Jake Siner. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if you're catching us on MILB.com or elsewhere. Do that. Head over to iTunes Podcast and uh, check us out there. Give us a rating. Give us a review. And subscribe to the show. we got a whole lot, a whole lot coming up on the show today. Uh, Jeff Hoffman. Third-ranked Toronto Blue Jays prospect in a 2014 draft selection will join us. Tommy John guy, he has finally made three appearances in his professional career. Last time out, outstanding. His first scoreless outing of the year over five innings. We're going to catch up with Hoffman coming up later. And uh, there's, again, more big prospects headed up to the big leagues this week. Uh, and that's where we're going to start diving in with strike number one today in our three-strike segment for episode number 10. Might as well get right into it. Joey Gallo, the top prospect in the Texas Rangers organization, headed up to Arlington. We're recording on Tuesday. He's anticipated to make his debut tonight for the Rangers. Uh, Joey Gallo, he's been a lot of fun to watch for a lot of people in the minor leagues for the last few seasons, and now fans in Texas who have been clamoring for him. Unfortunately for them, it comes at the expense of Adrian Beltre, who goes on the disabled list, but they'll finally get a look at Joey Gallo. This is a really exciting time to be in Arlington. Yeah, we've, we've enjoyed having Joey in the minor leagues, but I think we have probably written just about everything we're going to be able to write about him at this point in the minors. His... Uh, his power is the stuff of legend in our circles. He won the uh, – well, first in, in 2012, he set the Arizona League record with 18 home runs. Uh, the next year, he went to uh, Class A Hickory, and he hit 40 home runs and won the minor league home run title. The next year, he hit 42 home runs, finished one behind his, uh, his childhood buddy, Chris Bryant, for the home run lead. And uh, this year, he was hitting 314 at A with nine home runs in 34 games. He uh, had a little bit of a slow start to the season and battled an ankle or heel injury, rather, I should say, in spring training and missed the start of the season, but it's been, uh, been outstanding at double-A. He got some double-A time last year, too. Cut his strikeout rate between last year and this year by, like, 5%, 6%. Um, doing a lot of good things. He's gotten better at defense at third. He's gotten a little time in the outfield, too. Uh, he's, I think, ready for the first look in the majors. I'm not sure that I expect him to light the world on fire. I think he's going to hit a few... Just tail, tail tape home runs that are that are going to be impressive, and the batting practices are going to be worth showing up for. Um, worried about the strikeout rate early on. I think eventually he'll adjust and, and grow into a, a really good player. But um, yeah, definitely one of those promotions you're excited to see because this is a guy who's bringing something to the major leagues that the major leagues doesn't necessarily have. He has as much power probably as John Carlos Stanton. Certainly, that's you know he's in that class and there's not a lot of guys in that class anywhere in the world really but in, in the major leagues right now so we'll see if the hit tool lets that power play but the the raw strength the ability to hit hit balls really really far is uh something he's going to bring he really is like he's almost Paul Bunyan like and the stories you hear about Joey Gallo it's like people are talking about somebody who doesn't actually exist and if you've ever watched him put on a display in batting practice uh, you know why if you haven't and you're in the Arlington area or anywhere else that the Joey Gallo show is going to be headed get there early and try to catch some BP because you will not see much of anything like it between Joey Gallo and Josh Hamilton those are like two of the best batting practice 
performers in human history. Uh, but I think, Jake, you hit the nail on the head in that what is exciting about Joey Gallo for Rangers fans is that he has continued to adapt and work on those strikeout numbers. For so long, that was the knock on Joey Gallo. He struck out 172 combined times over 111 games in 2013 between Class A Hickory and some games uh, with the Arizona League Rangers. Last year, able to work on that, especially at the Class A advanced level, cut it down to 64 strikeouts in 58 games for Myrtle Beach. Strikeout numbers were up again with Double A Frisco, 115 in 68 games. But this year, he's really been able to kind of find himself as he continues to apply those methods of improvement to not whiff so consistently. 49 strikeouts over 34 games this year for Frisco, but that is a considerable jump uh, in the percentage. And that, I think, is what's going to serve Joey Gallo most effectively as he makes the jump to the major leagues. I think for a while, there's probably going to be some struggle there jumping from double a to the big leagues is tough enough as it is and especially when you're a guy who major league pitchers kind of will figure out how to exploit at least for a little while because that's what power hitters have they have that issue at times but i do think that joey gallo has shown maybe better than any other prospect uh from the power standpoint in recent memory that he's able to adapt and cut down on those strikeout numbers because that's a very very difficult thing to do but he's been able to do that so far yeah, and it's, I mean, it is a profile, it's the kind of profile that struggles making that kind of jump. It's not, uh, there, there are differences, obviously, but it's not entirely dissimilar to what we saw with Javier Baez, his first try in Chicago. I think we've seen other guys. He, he doesn't have the uh, sort of preternatural bats ball ability. He doesn't have the, the tiny strike zone or something. He's not a guy who's going to make a lot of contact, so he's going to be able to do something like Devin Travis does, where he makes contact regardless of what you throw him. Um, so worried there might be a little bit of an adjustment there, but I think. Uh, just based on the makeup, based on the way that he has shown an ability to improve in the past, I think he'll probably be okay. Turn out to be a, a pretty good player, and I think it's it's exciting because he's a guy who it's not like it's you know Rangers fans now have a guy who could become the next so and so. He's very very unique. It's kind of rare you get that. You know, when a guy like uh, Chris Bryant comes up, you kind of think, yeah, he could maybe do what Miguel Cabrera does. Right. He, everything goes perfectly. Or he could do. You know, you see a pitcher. We have pitchers that can. You know the. Jose Fernandez came up and you were hoping he would do what Justin Verlander was doing or something. Joey Gallo has a chance to do uh, something that is not really happening in the game right now. It hasn't happened in a while just with his power and, and with his ability to play on the infield and, and be a very different player than what we already have in the majors, I think, is, is what's most exciting about him. This is a really exciting time to be a Rangers fan, and we haven't been able to say that much over the last couple of seasons, but to finally get him up, and, you know, maybe he's not going to stick the entire th- season. Who knows what happens when Adrian Beltre comes back, but this is a very fun time if you're a Rangers fan right now to get him headed to Arlington tonight. Yeah, I do think I do think I saw the Rangers, somebody from, I can't remember who it was, or I saw a tweet, somebody quoted somebody saying they're planning on sending him back to AAA at some point, so I don't think it's a, a permanent move. But exciting. But exciting anyway. Exciting. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, yes, that rolls us into Strike 2, which is a much less exciting story, but certainly a very notable one. Uh, earlier this week, David Dahl, the Rockies center field prospect, was involved in a collision in center field. Uh, Tyler, you've kind of been our point man on, on reporting all this, so I'll let you kind of talk through the details and some of the fallout and what it might mean for, for Dahl's health and his career, um, kind of what happened with the collision and and medically kind of what's been going on with him. That was definitely a scary day. It was last Thursday on uh, May 28th. Joey Joey Gallo, already talking about him again. David Dahl was involved in an outfield collision with his second baseman, Juan Siriaco, during a game for AA New Britain at home against Altoona. Stetson Alley, the curved right fielder, hit a shallow fly ball to center as Dahl was coming in. Shortstop Trevor Story and second baseman Siriaco were converging from the infield. Now, in the video, it's sort of 
unclear. It's clear that David Dahl tried to call off both infielders. Trevor Story obviously heard that. Siriaco did not. Story kind of peeled out of the way of the play. Siriaco, it wasn't until the last second that he tried to get out of the way. And when he did so, he leapt to try to avoid David Dahl. And instead of avoiding him, his knee and shin kind of crashed into David Dahl's torso and chest and into his head. Uh, Dahl was knocked down. Stayed on the ground for a little while, did leave the field under his own power. Initially, the fears were kind of concussion, maybe a rib injury, something like that. And then a report from Yahoo Sports' Jeff Passan said that Dahl had suffered a lacerated spleen. Uh, his father talked to AL.com. David Dahl's a Birmingham, Alabama area guy, uh, and said that he was in surgery and they were, quote, just trying to save the spleen now, unquote. That was the afternoon of that collision. Mike Dahl, David's father, was actually in New Britain and at the game, so kind of nice for him to be able to be there for his son but David Dahl rushed into surgery doctors did save the spleen uh they they worked around the laceration they were able to save the organ but that came at sort of a cost in itself Jeff Passan tweeted later that night after the surgery was successful he said that for the remainder of David Dahl's career he would most likely have to wear some sort of protective padding to guard against any further injury to the spleen. Now, from what I understand, and I'm not a, a medical professional, obviously. Uh, I don't accept people with my intellect at med school. But David Dahl is at risk uh, for further injury to that spleen had he kept his spleen. And that leads us into the events of yesterday. David Dahl elected to undergo a splenectomy, have his spleen removed, uh, and that, in theory could give him a little bit easier road back to baseball. Now, you you would like to have a spleen, I assume, but from all the stuff I've read, it's not an organ that, uh, you know, it's not like losing a, a vital thing that you can't work around. There are ways. Uh, we've seen other athletes. This has happened before in mostly in contact sports. You hear about guys in hockey or in football who have gone through this. Uh, actually, here in the city of Denver, kind of a famous case, Peter Forsberg for the Colorado Avalanche back in the 2001 Stanley Cup playoffs suffered a ruptured spleen, had it removed. So David Dahl, having his spleen removed now has the chance to possibly return to game action this year after the surgery it was initially said that he'd be out for the year instead he could come back this season so a scary situation for David Dahl but it looks like he is a going to be okay and b could return uh at some point this season maybe to double a new Britain we'll see where the Rockies handle him that way yeah just on a quick perusal of the WebMD page on splenectomies it seems like the the wrists are Things like uh, the, the spleen helps the body fight off bacteria, so he's going to be more uh, more likely to develop infections or something like that. Which that's that's, that's a hard choice, and that's a right. Uh, I think it speaks to his commitment to baseball and to um, you know something he's now going to live with for the rest of his life, and it's costing him or just so he cannot miss the entire 2015 season. Um, I did. I love the the attitude he came with. He tweeted out on Friday, a day after he had the, the injury in the first surgery. Um, just oozing, oozing want and clearly a desire to get back on the field and uh, certainly a mentality you like from a player development standpoint. Uh, the, the, what he tweeted out was, for the people who think I'm injury prone or think that I play the outfield recklessly, then you are out of your mind. I play the game hard in the right way. And he goes on to explain a little more about just who he is and what he's thinking as he's coming out of the surgery. And um, You know, a guy who I've talked to a few times, I think Tyler, you probably have more experience with him, Seems like a pretty bright kid and, and uh, a guy who uh, I know there was rumblings about some makeup issues or something in his rookie year. He had put all those behind him. The Rockies were very, very happy with the the person he had grown into, has grown into over the, the last couple of years in his minor league career. He's become a leader on the, the teams he's played with. He's a guy who's certainly looked on within the organization as 
as part of the future of that team, uh, both because of his physical tools and because of who he's become makeup-wise. Um, yeah, definitely certainly wishing him the best and, and a guy who uh, glad we're going to see again at some point in, in 2015 and glad this wasn't worse than, uh, than it was. Yeah, unfortunately for Dahl, he's somewhat familiar with losing out on large portions of, of seasons. Uh, early on in his career, he was drafted with the 10th overall pick in 2012. That season was phenomenal for rookie-level Grand Junction in the Pioneer League, batted 379, 423, 625. He was an MILB.com organization all-star that year. Postseason all-star in the uh, Pioneer League that season. He was the most valuable player of the Pioneer League. He was the tops Pioneer League player of the year, like all the mantle-filling trophies that you can imagine but the next season kind of threw david doll off track a little bit coming out of spring training he missed a team uh purchased flight to join class a Asheville for the 2013 season uh booked his own flight made his own arrangements to make it to Asheville, made it there on time but the rockies called him back to extended spring training he spent about a month there then when he returned started off pretty strong for class a Asheville, 10 games a 275 310 425 line and then at, at about the middle part of may uh ruptured his hamstring uh tore the hamstring and missed the entire rest of the season there so 2013, basically a lost campaign. Last year, very good, especially for Asheville in 90 games. He also saw 29 games of Class A advanced, and now this year he's got to deal with this again. So David Dahl, a guy who is not a stranger to adversity and coming back strong, and obviously, I mean, we really wish him the best with his recovery from something that was pretty scary this week. He did also tweet, just a few hours ago, he had the surgery yesterday. He said today, quote, thank you for the thoughts and prayers. Surgery went well, and now I'm currently resting in my room, hoping to be back on the field doing what I love soon. So all the best to David Dahl on his road back. Uh, and strike three today is we go from a couple of off-the-field things, a promotion and an injury, to one magical night on the field, <laughs> which I don't even know if you can explain what Derek Fisher did the other night for the Houston Astros. Uh, but a 61-year-old California League record fell in a major way as Derek Fisher, University of Virginia product, just exploded for the Lancaster Jethawks. Consider that his numbers first are just about the most ridiculous things you can imagine. Four for six, three home runs, a double, 12 runs batted in. He homered three times and hit two grand slams in the first three innings of Lancaster's 16-3 win over High Desert on May 30th. And, oh, by the way, it was his California League debut. How do you do that? That's It's one of the more remarkable performances I can think of since I've been following minor league baseball. And we have... A lot of games that happen all the time. So we get, you know, you think about like remarkable things happening in the major leagues. Guy hits three home runs or four home runs or something. It's it's pretty cool. It happens more often in the minor leagues. And this is something that I didn't even couldn't even really like fathom. This three home runs, two grand slams in his 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 uh, in back to back innings. In back to back innings. Uh, and this was the day before. The next day, like, and you know, maybe this explains some of it. The next day, Lancaster hit eight home runs in a game. Right. Broke some records doing that. And, and Fisher, by the way, had one of those eight home runs. So in his first two California League games, he hit two home runs. Um, but yeah, Fisher's an interesting guy. Even aside from kind of all this, he was a, a supplemental round pick, 37th overall by the Astros last year. And there's, I mean, a little, a little bell goes off in your head every time you see the Astros at this point drafting a college hitter who profiles mostly for his bat, and that's because Jeff Lunau and, and Sig Dell are there. They're the two guys who were behind a lot of the drafts, the success that the St. Louis Cardinals had in the mid-2000s and late 2000s, right. later in the, the 2000s, for the turn of the decade, with the Cardinals drafting a lot of college hitters who seemed to come out of nowhere, guys like Matt Adams, Alan Craig, uh, who am I missing? I'm missing Matt Carpenter. Um, a lot of these guys who kind of came out of nowhere and, and became really good major league hitters. 
So every time you see a guy like Fisher, who was a good hitter, a corner outfielder at, at Virginia, go get selected by one of these guys, get selected by the Astros, and then go and have a lot of success in his minor league debut. Uh, he debuted with uh, Class A Quad Cities this year. It wasn't his debut. He played there a little last year. But hit 305, six home runs, showed a good plate discipline, stole some bases, doing a lot of things well, looking like a, another find for, for Lunal and Mydell and, and what's becoming a pretty a long list of successful college bats that they, they've picked up. And certainly I mean, the debut is just, that's just an absurd thing. You don't hit three home runs in, in your, your debut, even if you're playing at Lancaster. Broke a 61-year-old record uh, back in 1954. Stockton's Robert Rivich drove in 12 runs uh, <laughs> in a league that, and this is kind of how I posed it, I talked to, to Fisher after the game that night, in a league that had teams like the Channel Cities Oilers and the Bakersfield Indians. And I told him that the Bakersfield Indians were a Dodgers affiliate. They were a Brooklyn Dodgers affiliate when that record was set. And Fisher said, quote, I couldn't put it in perspective until you said what you just did, that the Brooklyn Dodgers had an affiliate. That's pretty remarkable. Six 61 years that's, that record has stood. First game up, Derek Fisher's like, nah, whatever. I got 13. It's fine. Yes, I thought I would ask you before this weekend what the California League record for RBI is. Right. Was. What would you have guessed? I don't know. That's a good question because I think I would have figured that it was more than 12. I probably yeah. would have said like 14 or 15. I, I think I would have said at least that. Just I mean, 12 RBIs is a ton of RBIs. That's the California League is like playing on the moon. Any business getting in one game. Right, exactly. The California League we're talking about. <laughs> It's uh, it's it's pretty remarkable. I mean, the Cal League is like playing on the moon. It's you know, like the ball flies. High Desert is probably the most offensive ballpark in baseball, uh, in minor league baseball certainly. And but I will say that uh, Jason Schwartz, the outstanding play-by-play guy for the Lancaster Jetthawks, did text me later that night and said those three homers were not High Desert homers. Those were legit big home runs that he hit. So it wasn't like you know Fisher got lucky there playing an offensive ballpark. He was locked in that night the way few guys are on any given night. And that, what a debut. What a way to introduce yourself to a team. <laughs> Not bad. Jay-Z approves. <laughs> so that wraps up Three Strikes for episode number 10 of MILB.com's The Show Before the Show podcast. Really excited to uh, talk a little pitching next after talking some hitting with three uh, position player prospects. Now we're going to move on over to the uh, the pitching side. Toronto Blue Jays prospect Jeff Hoffman joins us. Third-ranked prospect in the organization. We'll talk to him with Class A Advanced Dunedin right now. <laughs> Our guest this week is a right-handed pitcher in the Toronto Blue Jays system, Jeff Hoffman. Jeff, we appreciate you uh, coming to join us. How's everything going? Uh, it's going great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we wanted to start with, uh, for those who don't know about Jeff, you were a first-round pick last year uh, despite having Tommy John surgery about a month before the draft. So you spent pretty much your first calendar year as a professional uh, rehabbing and, and coming back from the, the elbow injury. You made your uh, minor league debut uh, about two weeks ago. Uh, made a pretty good debut, and uh, we're hitting 99 miles an hour on the radar gun. And we know you had some of your ECU uh, teammates from college in attendance. I want to start just asking what that experience was like, making your your pro debut, having your college teammates able to show up and uh, to post some some pretty promising results, and obviously just to have the stuff uh, kind of come back. Just kind of what that felt like. Um, it was it was awesome. Uh, just just the feeling of getting back out there and and doing what I love. Um, you know, we had, I had some success, uh, didn't, I mean, it wasn't an A plus performance by any means, but, um, but then also having the, the guys from, from my, uh, past team at ECU in the, in the stands was, was pretty awesome having them there, um, you know, kind of cheering me on and they were here for the conference tournament. So, um, 
it was it was actually perfect timing for them to to be down here and to see me pitch. Jeff, the uh, the way that this season gets started now for you is the road back from Tommy John. Everybody, I feel like, is so familiar with now because so many people have had to go through it. You got started uh, toward the end of the month of May, but it obviously was a long process getting to that point for you uh, after the draft and your first year in the organization and all that. Take us through just kind of what that was like from the mental side of it, knowing that you've got a team, you've got an organization that's really excited about you. They're going to give you your time to get back and get healthy, and now finally being able to go out and put that together on the field especially through these first three starts what has that whole road been like uh, it's been really long um you know I, I, a lot of people come up to me and say hey you know it went by quick well it might have went by quick for, for people on the outside but uh <laughs> getting up every morning and having doing the same the same deal every morning uh for for basically 12 months is is tiring and uh um you know you kind of see how the mental aspect plays into the whole rehab um, you know, guys, guys basically have to keep themselves sane through the whole process. Guys go crazy because they're, they're not able to do the things that they've been able to do, um, you know, their whole life. So it's long, but, um, you know, when the, when the Jays took me, um, it was just a good feeling because, you know, when they're taking a guy, a risk on a guy, um, you know, they're, I mean, it, it's, it means a lot to you that that they're willing to take that risk and what they what they think about you as a player. So, um, you know, I knew I was in good hands when they took me, and uh, you know, since June I, I never looked back, and, and we got to work right away, and now I'm back on the mound. Yeah, Jeff, I wanted to ask uh, a just kind of when you started throwing again, and kind of what the process is like of coming back and throwing. But especially, I talked to Vince Horseman, the pitching coach in uh, Dunedin, after your first start, and talked to him about you hitting 99 miles an hour. It's something that not a lot of guys, even if they get there eventually coming back from Tommy John surgery 12 months after the surgery, that's pretty rare to get that much velocity back. Um, and he said he wasn't surprised because that's something you'd been doing in, in bullpen sessions and throwing and extended and things. Um, how quickly did that velocity come back and sort of that the ball just popping out of your arm like that? I don't know if there's anything you can kind of credit that to and just if there's any sense of relief the first couple times you see the radar gun and see that happening if there's, you know, any kind of concern or fear for you as you're going through the whole rehab process that you're going to come back and it's not going to be, you know, what it was before the surgery. No, I mean, it, that's all a tribute to, to the, the, the training staff and everybody that I worked with through the, through the whole time that I was out. Um, you know, Jeff Stevenson, uh, and that whole staff over at the, at the minor league complex, uh, did a phenomenal job. The, the weight trainers uh, got me right. They, uh, you know, we, we fixed some things um, going on with my body that might have might have um, you know caused caused me to be tight and put more stress on my elbow. Um, and I think I think just overall, I mean, I put on a lot of weight and I got a lot stronger through the whole process. So I think that's why that's why my arm is, is doing what it's doing right now. And um, you know, it's you know, it's all flexibility. I I, I got a lot of flexibility back in my shoulder and. And my shoulders are a lot stronger than what it was in college, so I think that's probably why I'm, I'm I have the same velocity that I had in college, and uh, why it's come back so soon. Uh, Jeff, I want to if you can expand on that. I think you hit it a little bit with the shoulder there, but fixing things in your body, and especially the the adding size. That's something. Just watching video of you from college and comparing it to some video I saw of the the first Indian start, it looks like you put on some good weight. I can't imagine coming back from an elbow injury, you're able to lift that many weights or anything early in the, the process. I'm curious what goes into adding size and strength like that. Maybe just expand a little on what kind of things you guys can do to, to get your body, I guess, more prepared to, to handle the pro rigors while you're doing the rehab with the, the elbow, too. 
No, it's it's you know the body all works together. So I mean, it, it's it sounds crazy, but you know your hips uh, have a lot to do with you know how how flexible you are, how how much you can open up your hips and and gain motion in those, and um, also your ankles, like all all that stuff. Everything plays into each other. So um, you know when we were able to to start lifting weights with the upper body, we had already had the lower body all in place where we wanted it to be. Um, so, you know, we started lifting upper body, upper body, I don't know, probably right around the same time you start throwing again, which is five, uh, five months in. Um, and if you have everything in place that you want to have in place with your, with your lower body, then it, it's just, it's fun to do because you, you get back at the upper body, you get, um, you know, your chest strength back, your, your, your back is, uh, getting stronger. Your shoulder is, has been strong since the whole rehab, so the whole rehab, um, process so um you know it's just once again it's a tribute to the weight the weight trainers with the blue jays but they did a great job with me and um they really got me right jeff three starts in now uh obviously the the emotions of that first one had to have been pretty heavy especially with the fact you had so many guys in attendance from school and and being able to go out in front of those guys and have that extra energy but tell me a little bit about just what that was like to be able to to stride out to a professional mound for the first time go five innings be effective touch 99 have you know what seemed like a, a full arsenal working for you what can you encapsulate about how that was to approach that day from you know the time you got up and, and heading to the ballpark and i would imagine there were some butterflies getting out on the mound for the first time in a, in a Blue Jays uniform, yeah. but what was that whole day like? Oh, it was surreal. I mean, it's, it, you've come so long since, since last, I mean, I got hurt in April. So really it was, it was 13 months uh, since I had stepped on a mound, um, in a, in a competitive game, but, uh, no, it was, it was a joy ride the whole way. I mean, we, uh, I mean the whole, I mean, waking up in the morning, it was like, wow, it's finally here. You know, you, you know, you came all this time and now it's time to, it's, it's go time now. So, you know, it was, it was, uh, definitely nerve wracking. Um, I had nerves going for the first time in a long time and, and it made it fun. I mean, went out there and I had the jitters for the first inning, but after I got the first, first three outs, it was, it was like, you know, I've done this before. I know what I'm doing out here. Yeah, Jeff, you mentioned it'd been 13 months since you pitched. I wanted to ask about that experience your, your junior year at ECU. Um, you entered into the year as a guy who I think was getting some consideration as a first-round yeah. pick, probably the first half of the first round, and put together some really strong starts. And I know talking to, to some people around the early April, late March, that you were in heavy consideration to be the, the first overall pick or certainly go within the first couple picks, and, and then obviously had the, the injury and the surgery. I'm just curious how aware you are of sort of the buzz around that with the draft and everything while you're going through the college season. And, and with that, just when you make that decision to go and have the surgery, if there's any kind of, uh, panic or fear, just kind of what the emotions are like as you, you do that, knowing it's a month before you're, you're going to be hopefully selected by a pro team and start your pro career, just how, how you thought that was going to influence that and kind of how that played out versus your expectations. No, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a crazy time in my life. I mean, we, you know, when I found out that, that I was going to need the surgery, I, you know, we didn't really know what to do. We had, I had input from, you know, anyone from Dr. Andrews to, to Coach Godwin at ECU, what, what we should do. Obviously, coming from from both of those sources, it was what what I think is going to be best for me in my future. Um, so, I mean, obviously, I chose to go ahead and get it done because you know, with with the way it is, with the way how frequently it's going on now, um, you know, it kind of came down to you know, it's it's probably going to happen at some point. So, why not get it done early and and get it out of the way, and then that way you don't have to worry about it when you're, you know. 
six or seven years into a big league career and, and, you know, you're really pitching when it really matters. So, um, I figured I'd get it done and, and, um, I had faith in, in, uh, in everybody behind me and, and thank God that I landed at at still a good spot in the first round. And, um, you know, the Blue Jays took me and they've taken care of me and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm back out here now and I'm, and I'm trying to prove myself. Yesterday's a great one for you. I mean, you'd gone five innings in your debut, four and a third last time out, gave up uh, four runs in each of those starts yesterday, first scoreless outing of the year, only two hits. To have that first real big step forward, that first real big dominant start under your belt, uh, I mean, what does that mean now just from a confidence standpoint? I already know you're feeling healthy and stuff feels good, but now know that you can go out, dominate hitters, get opposing lineups out, and be able to, to put that in your pocket. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, obviously I, w- I wish it would have happened, you know, at one of the first two starts, but uh, I'm glad it finally happened. And, and, you know, it was, it was really, you know, my stuff was there uh, in the first two outings and, you know, everything was good. The velocity is there. Obviously the, the breaking stuff is still there. The, you know, the changeup took me a little bit to get back. It's more of a field pitch, but I got that back. And, um, you know, it really came down to the first two games. I just left a few too many pitches up uh, and they got hit. And I mean, hitters do what they're supposed to do with those pitches. Um, so, you know, the, the third start, it was really, it was, it was a focus point for me to, to keep the ball down, um, no matter what. I mean, that was, that was what I was going to do going into the game. And, um, you know, and, and I really executed that plan. And, and, you know, that's why you see the numbers. I mean, two hits, uh, no walks. I haven't had issues staying in the strike zone. That's, I've actually probably been throwing too many strikes. So, um, that's a good thing though. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just, we had a good, good game plan. Catcher called a good game and, um, you know, we went out there and executed. Yeah, Jeff, on a, a little bit of a lighter note, you're also now about two weeks into your minor league career after I imagine you were mostly just at the minor league complex doing the rehab stuff, but getting your first experience with the minor league bus rides and, and being in the clubhouse. I want to ask about that experience. What what you've, you've turned to for the, the overnight bus rides or something, if there's a, a TV show or, or something that you're you're going to for that, kind of what that's been like? Well, yeah, actually the, uh, the first trip we went on was a, was a commuter trip, uh, Florida State League is actually pretty pretty decent for travel. You don't, you're not really on any overnight bus rides. But uh, the second trip we went on, we went to Jupiter's. It was a good four-hour trip. Uh, they had movies going on the bus. I mean, the, the guys in the locker room were a lot of fun to be around. So, um, you know, we were all laughing and, and joking around the whole ride there. Uh, a lot of sleeping going on. But, um, yeah, I mean, TV shows, I've actually been into uh, – the Marvel's Agents of Shield lately, so I, I've been I've been watching quite quite a bit of that uh, on Netflix, and and uh, whenever I have free time, I'll be I'll be on that. So that's kind of my go-to. Hey, great, Jeff. Uh, we appreciate you coming to join us, Jeff Hoffman, pitcher in the Toronto Blue Jays system. Uh, yeah, Jeff, thanks for joining us, and uh, have a good day. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks to Jeff Hoppin for joining us. The Florida State League season, uh, you kind of heard. It's interesting to talk to somebody in the Florida State League and hear, you know, when he talks about travel, it's so different from if you're in the Carolina League or the California League or somewhere else because, you know, there's a lot of commuter series and the travel isn't that that bad. But they make up for for the fact that they have, like, de- you know, 8 billion degree days with 9,000% humidity. So I guess that's and the, all, all of the rain outs. <laughs> and every rain out. So I guess that's the trade off. Uh, but a big thanks to, to Jeff for joining us today. Uh, you can go follow him on Twitter, by the way, as well. He is at Hoff underscore 23 in case you are so inclined. So with that, 
We're going to segue into uh, a little bit of draft discussion. Coming up in just a few days, the Major League Baseball 2015 first-year player draft will be held. This is uh, an interesting draft, I think, in, in terms of the last few seasons we've seen this a lot. There's not really a clear-cut order that most people think that this is going to go in 2015 we're not going to talk about 2015 right now what we are going to do is we're going to talk about the 2014 draft and look back on last year and the way that some guys have started so far this uh season and even last season the starts of their professional careers with our best and worst picks so far the first round and sleepers from outside the first round who have made big impact so far this season so jake start us off who's your best pick in the first round of 2014 my best pick, and I'm going a little bit chalk here because it was, it was an early pick, but my best pick is the Cubs grabbing Kyle Schwarber with the fourth overall pick. Um, and I, it's kind of hard to remember this, but Schwarber was kind of a surprising grab for them at fourth overall. He was the guy who uh, caught a little bit, played some outfield, played I think some first base when he was at college at Indiana, had really good numbers there. But he was kind of lumped into a conversation with some other guys. A.J. Reed is, was the, the best hitter in, in college baseball last year. Um, along with Michael Conforto and some of those other guys. It didn't seem like reading different publications and talking to different people, there was a whole lot of space uh, considered between all, all of those guys as far as their offensive upside. And the difference was that Schwarber had caught a little bit, which didn't mean there was a lot of enthusiasm for whether he could or could not catch. And in the time since the draft, I think he has very clearly separated himself as by far the best bat from that draft. He's in A right now and hitting 322 with 12 homers. Got the OPS up over a thousand, um, and the catching is is going well better than I think people expected. I think there's still a lot of healthy skepticism that he's going to stick a catcher long term. I think there's a lot of talk about how he could potentially fill in in left field for the Cubs right now and give that that team a little boost as they're making a playoff push. But it's it's not completely unreasonable to be trying him out at catcher right now, and it's a bat that will play in left field if he has to play there. But if he can catch, if he can, he's you know getting some good reviews on some things like pitch framing and. Um, some of the little more the smaller things. So if he can get the catch and throw and get the game calling and, and just physically kind of be able to handle that, um, has a chance to be a really, really special player. I think already, though, has stood out as uh, probably the best player from that draft, the top prospect from that draft right now, I think. Uh, you could argue maybe Carlos Rodon would be thrown in there just for a guy who's having success in the majors already. Uh, but, yeah, Schwarber's, Schwarber's definitely my guy. Who you got, Tyler? I'm going to go with Brandon Finnegan, uh, the TCU product who was taken in the first round last year by the Kansas City Royals and, of course, made the, the meteoric rise to the big leagues. He was the 17th overall pick. I guess it's kind of a cheap pick because he stood out on such a big stage last year. But Finnegan, what I like that he provides for the Royals is the fact that he can work in a variety of roles. I mean, what we saw from him last year as a reliever at the major league level was unbelievable. A 1.29 ERA and seven appearances last year in the regular season for Kansas City. He has started so far this year three out of his five games for AA Northwest Arkansas were starts. He went 0-1 with a 2.77 ERA. In AAA, he's fared a little bit rougher in two games, one start there, 7.20 ERA. But I like what Brandon Finnegan presents for this organization in his versatility and in his upside and his top-end talent. The Royals, obviously, I think kind of pride themselves on that, being able to find guys who are very athletic and can do a whole lot of different things. And I think Finnegan, just setting aside what he did last year in the Major League level, that I think just gives you a taste of what he's capable of. And I really like what they've done with him so far this season, working him in a starting role, getting him some more looks in relief. I think he could be a pretty big impact guy for years to come for Kansas City. Yeah, and some other guys who, who stood out that I think Hoffman uh, for the Blue Jays at, was at 10th overall, I think that was. Check it, yeah, at 9th overall, rather, sorry. Uh, I think that's looking like a really smart pick right now. I think he's 
got the most upside of maybe any pitcher in that draft and looks like he's getting closer to reaching that. And Michael Kopech, we talked about last week, and uh, Forrest Wall with the Rockies, I thought, at the, the back end of the first round was a real nice pick. Um, I have a giant man crush on Forrest Wall, so I agree I figured, with that one. I figured you're a Rockies I agree with that one. Very much so. Worst pick, Jake, for the first round 2014 fire away. It's early, obviously. We're not declaring these guys dead in the water for their careers, but so far the pick that has not panned out to you, fire away. Yeah, so I know who you're going to talk about, so I'm going to steer clear of that, but I think you might be right, but with uh, sort of in a different way. I'm going to go with uh, the second overall pick with the Marlins, Tyler Kolek, and this actually has very little to do with Kolek and more to do with the fact that the guys drafted behind him I think have all emerged as uh, more notable prospects in the time since. Kolek's pitching with Class A Greensboro, and he's, he's doing okay. He's got a 5.11 ERA. Uh, he's only struck out 31 in 44 innings, but he's still the guy that can hit 100 miles an hour. He has the, the strongest arm of all the guys in the draft last year. Um, I don't think it was a, a bad pick, and I don't necessarily mean to knock the Marlins for grabbing him, but I think the the list of guys that I'd rather have than Tyler Kolek at this point that were drafted after Tyler Kolek is so deep that, that it seems like a, a pick at this point that uh, the Marlins maybe want to have back. Carlos Rodon was the next pick by the White Sox. I think he's a guy who clearly is, is obviously very far ahead of Kolek in the development process, and I think um, that and I mean their ceilings are close enough where I think having the guy who's already in the majors makes him very much worth it. Schwarber I think is the best prospect from that draft. So I'd obviously take him. Aaron Nola is very close to contributing in the major leagues. Jeff Hoffman is a guy who's probably pretty close. I think Michael Conforto's emerged as a really good bat. Trey Turner I think I'd rather have. I think Kolek is maybe in the same class right now as Sean Newcomb or Tuki Toussaint from the Angels or the D-backs. Um, you could even make an argument that maybe Nick Gordon or Alex Jackson or even Brandon Finnegan might have been a, a better pick at that point and, and certainly have a little bit better of a, of a stock as far as prospects go. Um, so Kolek's one that stands out. Kolek and, and Kyle Freeland was another one with the Rockies, who uh, maybe that one will turn out okay, but it seems like the health issues there are beginning to become a little bit of a concern, and they were a little bit of a concern before the draft, too. It's interesting to see what happens there. But uh, Tyler, who is, who is, why don't you tell us about your worst pick from the first round? You know, it's kind of, like you said, it's going down a different road, but I think top overall pick Brady Aiken has to be uh, viewed that way this year only because of the fact that it turned into such a bizarre situation. The Astros may come out of it very well. They'll get the compensation pick for not signing Brady Aiken last year, but he was the first number one pick to not agree to a contract since 1983. If you don't remember the story, Brady Aiken last year, left-handed pitcher, grabbed out of high school in San Diego with the first overall pick. The Astros and Aiken appear to have a deal pretty much almost done uh, but then there was uh, kind of a difference of opinion regarding what his physical showed about how his how healthy his elbow was Aiken last year said he was healthy people around him said he was healthy but instead the Astros decided that they were not going to give him uh, initially what was anticipated would be his deal and the two sides never came to an agreement he went to IMG's post-grad academy team this spring but only through a handful of pitches coming out in his first outing of the year and then was lifted from that start uh, with an injury that later turned out to need Tommy John surgery. So he announced, uh, I believe, last month that he had undergone Tommy John surgery. 18 years old, Brady Aiken, this is how good he is. He could still be selected in the first round this year. He can go back into the draft, and with his ceiling, with his talent, with how guys come back from Tommy John, he could still go in the first round this year. But it was at the end of March that he underwent Tommy John surgery, and uh, that whole situation just turned into a kind of a blight, I think, 
really on what the Astros uh, were planning to do with the draft. A lot of people called into question their motives. Now, I think the, the organization was vindicated, obviously, by the unfortunately, by the injury to Brady Aiken. I think it showed that they weren't just messing around with the situation, but it kind of goes down to me as being the, the worst pick just because of the situation that elapsed from it after the Astros took him and he was unable to be signed. So Brady Aiken, again, coming back on the road back from Tommy John surgery, and we wish him all the best. Could still be a first-round talent this year, but he's probably not going to be a first overall pick ever again and and that you know it's a tough thing to see for any kid especially an 18 year old coming out of high school yeah yeah that's been a a tough situation to follow but the thing that stands out about that is that i'm not sure that the astros should have i think the collection of uh, health information made it a probably impossible for them to have that information whatever information they had on his elbow to get that before they made that pick right um it seems like whatever red flag they saw was at least a a warranted red flag at least that's what's sort of been signaled to us and what we can infer from that uh, moving on, the, the last thing we were going to talk about is we're reaching a pick, a favorite pick from outside of the first round. Tyler, if you want to go first here, you can feel free to, to jump in. You know, I'm going to go with uh, Jacob Lindgren, who was a second-round pick of the Yankees last year out of Mississippi State. Uh, already has rocketed to the big leagues. He's pitched well in 34 career minor league games. Last year started out in the Gulf Coast League for one game, made four appearances in Class A Charleston, six appearances in Class A Advanced Tampa. This year started with Double A Trenton, eight games there, 15 games to Scranton, Wilkesbury, and Triple A. He's climbed the entire ladder, and he's made it to the big leagues already in this just his second season. 34 minor league appearances, all in relief, a three and two record of 1.74 ERA. Not a whole lot of exposure so far at the major league level from what we've seen from him. Three games pitched a 5.40 ERA, but any kid who's going to jump out of the second round and be in the big leagues less than a year later is pretty impressive. Yeah, it has some ceiling there, too. It could be a, a late-inning reliever and uh, the guy that, that certainly helps the, the depth. He's not going to be Mo. Okay, no, everybody. Okay, everybody. Mo, I, don't, I don't think you draft guys hoping to get Mo. I think you draft guys hoping to get at least a setup guy or something like John that. John Wetland. Get guy. John Wetland out of it. You get that. That's That's serious value very quickly, which for a team like the Yankees that's trying to compete, that, that has a lot of value. Uh, my guy is also a pitcher, a right-handed pitcher, who came out of Walter State Community College at the end of the second round, talking about Brent Honeywell, the Tampa Bay Rays. Honeywell was really not a guy who was getting talked about in that slot. He was, I think, uh, Baseball America had him outside of their top 100. I don't think Baseball or uh, MLB.com had him in their top 200 list. But the Rays signed Honeywell and gave him, I think it was like $800,000, and he's been just outstanding ever since, emerged as one of the better pitching prospects from that class. He's in uh, Class A Bowling Green right now, has a 2.81 ERA. Um, his strikeout-to-walk ratio is 54-8. to eight. Honeywell, the most notable thing about him is that he throws a screwball, which has been handed down to him via his father, uh, or from Mike Marshall, the Cy Young winner in the, the 1970s, who is his uncle, and Mike Marshall taught the, the screwball to Brent Honeywell's dad, and Honeywell now throws that screwball. Um, also has a changeup that has become a really good pitch. His fastball ticks up into the mid-90s, um, and then has a curveball that's come a long way, too. His ability to improve has been really impressive. His game has kind of jumped a long way since even the, the Rays drafted him. The results have been really good. Um, definitely think that's, I think, if, if Honeywell was pitching right now, this time last year, the way that he is right now, uh, I think he'd, he'd be a guy that might go in the, the back half of the first round or middle of the first round. He's, he's looking that good. Uh, and then some other guys that, that stood out uh, in the third round, the Indians grabbed Bobby Bradley, who's uh, probably a first baseman long-term, but he's really been raking it at every level so far. Uh, one that got some press this offseason, and anyone on the prospect list came out, was Ryan Yarborough with the Mariners. was a fourth-round pick who signed for 40000 and ended up ranking 10th overall on uh, MLB.com's Mariners list and was kind of a 
more or less a consensus top 10 prospect in the Mariners system now for a guy who signed for barely any money relative to, to the other guys around him. Um, and another one who's really standing out is Ryan O'Hearn, who was an eighth-round pick with Kansas City and is leading the South Atlantic League in home runs and has been one of the best power hitters in the minors since he signed, still working to maybe establish himself as a prospect, but certainly he's performed well beyond what I think most people were expecting to see from him as an eighth-round pick. The 2015 Major League Baseball first-year player draft is coming up on Monday the 8th. Here's the top five picks, and keep an eye out for one of them who might be a, a common theme in the first five. Arizona Diamondbacks' top overall pick. Houston Astros get the second overall pick as compensation for not signing Brady Aiken with number one last year. Colorado Rockies are third. The Texas Rangers are fourth. And the Houston Astros are fifth. The Houston Astros, two picks in the top five. It'll be very interesting to see what they are going to do with those picks. A lot of good stuff on MLB.com. Draft preview coverage there as well. You can get to know guys like Tyler J, Dylan Tate, Carson Fulmer, those types of guys. Uh, a lot of good talent coming out. Also, a guy named Kyle Funkhauser out of uh, Louisville. And so I just want my team to take a guy named Funkhauser because <laughs> – that is outstanding, and he should win Miners Moniker Madness every year for the rest of his career. Yeah, if you're watching on TV, you should look out for me. I'll be there uh, in Secaucus on, on Monday. Awesome! Look for the bearded guy standing awkwardly in the background trying to Keep get an it. eye out for Jake Siner. He is the size of a house, which is something that I did not know about Jake until last week. Not a big house. Not a big house, just like a, you know, like a built, like a, like a good house. A solid house. Now it's getting creepy. I don't want to be creepy to you, Jake. I apologize. Yeah, the, the drinks we got are, cut, are starting to have a very different light. You insisted on buying all the drinks. I wasn't really sure why. Now, now I just wanted to hang out with Jake a little more. A little creepy. <laughs> Draft coming up on Monday. Uh, like I said, a lot of good stuff on MLB.com, so go check that out. And uh, next, if we were going to take a, a draft of, of top minor league baseball promo writers, Benjamin Hill would be the top overall pick. I like that segue. Ben joins us next. Benjamin Hill and I are trading places sort of for this week. I'm out. I guess near the Midwest, and Ben is back in New York City. Ben, we we missed each other. I miss you. I miss you, Ben. I miss you every day. <laughs> Welcome back, man. The Midwest League trip, uh, Midwest League slash PCL trip. We talked to you last week, uh, as you noted before we started recording today, from a hotel room in Peoria, and today you're back in New York City. Tell us about the rest of the swing through the Midwest. Yeah, when I, I believe when I talked to you last week, yeah, I was in Peoria, and I'd already visited uh, Kane County, Clinton, and Quad Cities. And uh, then that night I went to a Peoria Chiefs game, which makes sense because I was in Peoria, and then on to Cedar Rapids and Omaha. So it was a Midwest whirlwind, um, almost all the Midwest League with, as you mentioned, a uh, ending in the Pacific Coast League in Omaha, even though Omaha is not on the Pacific Coast. Yeah, you, uh, there was one story I wanted to ask you about you did about the Quad Cities uh, trip, and we talked to you a little bit about Quad Cities before, but the story went up after we recorded was... Um, they've had troubles with flooding in Quad Cities, and they found an interesting way to work around that. I was wondering if you kind of tell people a little bit about that story and, and kind of what, what they do to combat some of the flooding issues they have around there. Yeah, I wrote a story about this for MILB.com. And, um, yeah, uh, Modern, Modern Woodman Park, um, the current name of the facility that the River Bandits play in, you know, it was built in 1931. It's undergone a lot of renovations, but it's located literally on the banks of the Mississippi River. So for the entire history of the stadium, flooding has been a common thing. It usually floods once or twice a year, uh, you know, the Mississippi floods. And if the Mississippi floods, then the ballpark gets flooded, and, and there you go. Uh, so 
there are some amazing pictures from that ballpark's history where literally the entire field is submerged in water. You cannot see any of the field. The stadium is just buried in water. But as part of recent renovations, first they added a berm, uh, you know, an outfield seating area that doubles as a flood wall in the outfield area. And then beyond that, uh, prior to the 2011 season, I believe, the city uh, went ahead and devised a flood, ball, a flood wall for the entire stadium. So they install adjustable aluminum panels around the perimeter of the ballpark and then erect a uh, pedestrian footbridge above the flood wall. So even if the entire ballpark is surrounded by water, if it literally looks like an island, fans can walk over this bridge, you know, on this bridge, over the flood wall, and see a game in literal flood conditions. It's one of the most uh, unique things you'll ever see in minor league baseball. And, I mean, we've seen that affect so many different teams and so many different ballparks over the years. Of course, there was terrible flooding in Harrisburg a few years ago. But the, the Midwest League teams, they have to contend with a lot of that stuff, especially around this time of year when the weather is kind of crazy. And I know weather affected the trip somewhat for you. But, uh, Ben, not many people get to do the the trips that you do and see minor league baseball in all different regions. What is it about the Midwest? What kind of sets the Midwest apart or makes it a little bit different from maybe trips in the Southeast or the Northeast or, or wherever else? I know it had been a while since you'd been to the Midwest, but did the games feel different? Did it feel like a different kind of atmosphere regionally? Um, yeah, I think every, every region, you know, just has its own feel. And I think what I feel in the Midwest is, you know, it might sound cliche, but you do feel like you're in the heartland. It's a little slower paced. Uh, people are friendly. And a lot of those ballparks, even if they're not that old, kind of have more of a classic feel to me. It's, it's um kind of a no-frills environment in a lot of ways, but you also end up with, you know, like when I was in Clinton, you know, community-owned team, an old ballpark, and getting a sense of minor league baseball, um, you know, how it was 50, 60 years ago, and still pretty pristine in that way. And I didn't go to Burlington this time around, but they still have that kind of atmosphere. You know, Quad Cities, they've done a ton of renovations, but again, that ballpark was built in the 30s. And even the newer ballparks, these regions often have minor league baseball histories, um, or these markets that go back decades and decades. So you just have a lot of history. You have fans who seem to know the game, I think, a little better than in other regions. I mean, family-friendly entertainment still reigns, but I think it's a really fertile area for minor league baseball and baseball in general. Yeah, changing gears a little bit and getting out of the Midwest, I want to ask you about one of the stories you wrote for, uh, for Cut 4 this week for the, the MLB.com blog. Uh, you wrote about in Lehigh Valley a certain promotion they're doing to tie in with uh, – the Iron Pigs are, are pretty consistently playing up the bacon aspect, the pork aspect of their they have the bacon hats and their identity. Uh, what, are, what are they doing this week that's kind of tying into that? That's, uh, that's kind of interesting. As I drop a marker, um, got to get all these office supplies out of my hand. These <laughs> <laughs> are terrible. Yes. Um, yeah, the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, um, as you guys know, once they once they went with the bacon branding, you know, the hats and the jerseys, as Jake just mentioned, uh, then they decided to say, well, we really got to up the presence of bacon at the ballpark if we're going to do that. So they branded their ballpark as, you know, Bacon USA. Welcome to Bacon USA. And added a lot of bacon concession items to the concession stand. So tomorrow, uh, or Wednesday, I guess this will air should be out tomorrow. All right. Well, Wednesday, June third, to give it a sense of <laughs> to give it a timestamp, a place and time. Uh, they are offering a ticket package, I believe, for only forty people, um, in which you can, in addition, of course, to seeing the game, have a quote generous sample portion of all seven of their bacon themed concession items. 
you know, which includes, I guess, a generous sample of the two-foot-long hot dog, which is topped with plenty of bacon and onion straws and all sorts of other stuff, as well as pure bacon product like uh, the maple-glazed uh, brown sugar bacon and chocolate-covered bacon. And uh, I guess if you like bacon, go to the Lehigh Valley game on Wednesday, June 3rd, 2015. That is, uh, you know, bacon's turned into, like, the all- loved the most beloved food product i think in america and nobody has capitalized on a trend it's like what lexington did with a mustache lehigh valley kind of set that bar high with the bacon which i really enjoy not well, bacon and mustache Tyler, Tyler, were you, Tyler, were you were in new york did you venture to the baconry at all no the, the all bacon bakery that we have in what? new york yeah you should have told you about this while you were still here you got some crazy stuff Got some yeah. crazy stuff. I've never been there either. <laughs> we do have a Voodoo Donuts here where you can get a, uh, a maple bacon bar, like a maple donut uh, with bacon on top. That's so when you guys come out here, I'm going to just start advocating for the winter meetings in Denver just so I can hang out with all of you guys in my city because that sounds really entertaining. <laughs> and we'll, we'll go grab a maple bacon bar. Ben, uh, let's talk a little bit about crooked numbers. It's always a, one of our favorite topics to cover every week and week to week. There's Last week felt like there were a lot of crooked number options. Tell us about some of the stuff uh, crooked number-wise this week. Well, Crooked Numbers, uh, the long-running column featuring all the on-field oddities. Actually, the new uh, the new edition covering the month of May went up today, and that was written largely by our colleague Ashley Marshall. So uh, credit to him for stepping up on writing Crooked yeah, Numbers. Yeah, give him credit. All right, no credit to Ashley <laughs> at all. Um, no, thank you, Ashley Marshall, for writing Crooked Numbers. And, um, you know, let's just look at a, you know, there's so many, sometimes there's deeply weird things or things that take a long time to explain. And then you have things like this on Saturday, which was May 30th, again, to give everything a date. The Myrtle Beach Pelicans scored five runs in the seventh inning, and yet they did so without a hit. And, you know, they sent ten batters to the plate that inning, batting around. No matter how you define batting <laughs> around, they sent ten batters to the plate, again, without a hit. And the first six batters of the inning walked. So that was really where uh, most of the problems came in. There were two wild pitches, a sacrifice fly, another some, somebody else walked along there. But to bat around and not get a hit in an inning, just one of those things. It's memorable, and it's embarrassing if you're the Potomac Nationals, the team that uh, allowed the Pelicans to do such a thing. But, uh, hey, that's baseball. That's a crooked number. Five runs, no hits, seven walks, two wild pitches, and a sacrifice fly. <laughs> <laughs> Two men left on base. If you're a pitching coach in that inning for Potomac, that's like, what do you do? You just, like, throw your hat down in the dugout. Yeah, I, I don't so. know. <laughs> he is Benjamin Hill. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Ben's Biz. You can read the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. You can also check out Ben's stuff now on Cut 4 at MLB.com. And, uh, Ben, welcome back to New York. Even though I am not there, I will welcome you as if I am. And, uh, you know, good to see you back in safe. Thank you. You're always with me in spirit, Tom. Benjamin Hill back in uh, in his home setting for uh, for a while, and a big thanks to him for joining us talking about the the Midwest League and the PCL with this stop in Omaha as well. And uh, that'll do it for us. That'll wrap up episode number ten of the Minor League Podcast, the show before the show. Again, you can rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. You can find us there. You can also find us on milb.com, milb.com. Uh, Jake, what do we got coming up? There's a ton of prospects we got coming up on on milb.tv this week. Uh, Corey Seager obviously continues to do Corey Seager like things. He had a six for six game last week. Uh, Derek Fisher, if they go. Through through San Jose soon. You can maybe see Derek Fisher try to drive in, you know, like 30 in a game. Uh, we got a lot coming up on Milb TV this week.
Yeah, we got uh, Yo Mikata's back and healthy, and I didn't check if Greenville's playing at home this week, but I imagine he'll be on Mill TV, not this week, certainly every week, and he's still probably the, the biggest watch, the guy that I'm, I'm trying to find the most. Um, yeah, and then I'm just getting ready for uh, for the draft next week, too. We're going to have some coverage on, on that, some of the guys that will be minor leaguers soon. Um, so that'll be that'll be taking up most of my time over the next few days, just getting prepped for that. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's more or less what we got coming up. Give Jake a follow on Twitter. He is at Jake underscore Signer. I'm at Tyler Mon. M-I-L-B is at M-I-L-B. Benjamin Hill is at Ben's Biz. And you can, again, rate, subscribe, and review on iTunes. And uh, until next week, enjoy the draft uh, and enjoy uh, another week of baseball. We'll talk to you guys then.